0: saying pretty much the same thing and so I'm going to repeat once again that we are in a real battle and you say why in the world do we keep saying that over and over again why do we need to keep hearing that same thing and the reason is one of the main reasons is because there's a huge difference between wartime mentality and vacation mentality isn't there If you're going to fight well, you need to think of life with a wartime mentality. If you want to fail and not fight well, if you want to lose the battle, then you've got to think of the Christian walk as a vacation or as retirement. And one of my chief responsibilities as a pastor is to remind you that this is a war that we are in and we need to approach it with a wartime mentality we need to think of it that way that's the way we need to approach our spiritual walk i've also been telling you that we are fighting a real battle and the real battle is for faith once again you say why do we need to be reminded what we're fighting for and the answer is you will not fight well if you do not know what you're fighting for isn't that true if you don't know what you're fighting for, you're not going to fight well. And because some people don't know what we're fighting for, they do not work very hard. They do not discipline themselves. They do not struggle to work hard to do everything they can to read the Bible every day. You see, we are fighting for faith. And the Bible says faith comes by God. Faith comes by hearing. I didn't give you a chance, sorry. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. That's where faith comes from. And so if you understand what this battle is about, you're going to fight hard every day to make sure you're reading the Bible. Or else you're setting yourself up for failure. Because that's where faith comes from. If we're fighting for faith, then we need to ask ourselves, what is the greatest danger? And once again, we say this over and over again, because we need to be reminded of what the greatest danger in our lives are. And it's not really complicated to know what the greatest danger in our lives is. It's not coronavirus, it's not pimples, it's not um, diseases, it's not getting old. The greatest fearful danger out there is unbelief. That's the greatest danger. Heaven and hell and eternity are in the balance. So our faith is really... What we need to understand, the battle is about and it's for, and the greatest danger is unbelief. And that's why, if you look throughout the Bible, you will find lots and lots of warnings. You will. And pretty much every single one of them is a warning against unbelief. It's a warning against falling from the faith. It's a warning, an exhortation, to continue to hold fast to Christ, to not lose sight of Him. And that's what we need to hear. The enemy, all he wants to do is undermine your faith. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care how he does it, as long as he undermines your faith. So, one of the questions is that we've asked a number of weeks ago, and we're going to ask again, is what are the tactics of the enemy? We are not to be ignorant of his divisive we? And it's good to understand the tactics of the enemy. And there are two kind of general areas that you can categorize the tactics of the enemy under. One of the tactics of the enemy is to intimidate you with fear. We saw that in chapter 36, didn't we? What's interesting is if you look at the parable of the sower, um, Jesus in the parable said one category of temptation is trouble and persecution. And because of that, some will fall away from the word. Some of them will fall away. And so fear, trouble, persecution... This is too difficult. I don't want to lose my life. People hate me. It's it's too hard of a path. Some will fall away. Another tactic is to seduce you through promises of better things. And once again, Jesus gave two different temptations that will cause people to fall away in the parable of the sower. And if you remember what the second one was, it was, they will be other wealth, there will be other things that will look better and more promising and will cause people to fall away. In Matthew 4, verses 19. So these are the two temptations, the two categories of temptations that seems to cover the tactics of the enemy. Ray Ortland said this, and I think he was right. The book of Revelation portrays evil arrayed against us in two forms. The great beast to intimidate us, and the great whore to seduce us. And if you go to different places in the world, I think you'll see one tactic seems to be predominant, doesn't it? You go to some countries, and it's fear. It's the fear of persecution that's predominant. And you go to other places like America, where we are so easily seduced, aren't we? By the pleasures and the promises and the things of this world. To turn away from the faith. The promises of this world are all around us. And they are a great temptation to fall away from the faith follow our pleasures, to seek our glory, to follow our desires. Now, after looking at this passage, chapter 39 of Isaiah, we will see both tactics. In chapters 36 and 37, we saw the Assyrians attack Judah with fear, didn't they? Primarily fear. They attacked Judah with fear. And they wanted to destroy their faith in God with fear. And if you remember, they bombarded Judah with one attack after another, trying to get them to come down from their faith. Now in chapter 39, we're seeing the other tactic. The Babylonians will be as a snare and a trap for Hezekiah, offering him glory, peace, comfort, and security. Ray Ortland said this once again. He said he overcomes the beast, right? Hezekiah has overcome the beast only to fall into the arms of the whore. Satan is not only in the exterminating Hitler, right? The Hitler, the fearsome, awful dictator of Hitler, but he's also in the smiling person of this world who promises the world to you as long as you give them their allegiance. In this passage, is therefore a warning to us. Be warned of the seduction of the enemy. So first we see that temptation towards unbelief can come into our lives in very sneaky ways and from surprising places. Such a temptation comes to Hezekiah in verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So first of all, who are the Babylonians? And there's only a couple things at this point we need to know about the Babylonians. First of all, the Babylonians were from a far country. And second of all, the Babylonians were rising up to be the only people who could really become a rival to the great Assyrians. The Assyrians were the dominating world power. I just have to shout a little louder. The, The Assyrians were the dominating world power. And uh, now the Babylonians were starting to rise up to be a rival to them. So what is going on here? We have to remember Hezekiah was sick, wasn't he? Last chapter, chapter 38. He was sick and he almost died. Right? If it wasn't for God intervening and miraculously and powerfully granting him 15 more years, God to the rescue. Hezekiah prayed and cried out to God and God healed him. That was the last chapter. And now the Babylonian king Moronah Baladin, has received word about this recovery. And so he wants to co- congratulate King Hezekiah for his recovery. He wants to say, congratulations, you're better. And so he sent this envoy with a present to congratulate him. What a nice guy, right? What a nice king the Babylonian ruler is well we have to think about this for a second there's something fishy going on here this sounds a little more like flattery than anything else we need to look behind the scenes and try to understand you see the Babylonians were not really famous for caring about other kings or other kingdoms they weren't really famous or popular for caring that much and so why in the world Would Baradak Baladin really care about Hezekiah's recovery? And it is likely the case that he wants to get a little more help wherever he can find it and uh, to form a greater coalition against the Assyrians. Now, when you think about it, uh, the Babylonians don't have too much to gain from little Judah, do they? Uh, Little Judah is very small and insignificant. But what I think is going on here is I believe that he is trying to get every little bit of help that he can get. Why not shore up some loose ends? Why not get a little more help? And why not show a little more, little compassion to try to get his favor on his side? Now is there anything wrong with the Babylonians coming to Hezekiah and congratulating him? Is there anything wrong with him receiving the Babylonians? the answer is absolutely not. I mean, what what an incredible opportunity for Hezekiah to glorify God, right? What an incredible opportunity for him to speak to these pagans who have no idea who God is and tell them that there is a mighty God. In fact, if you remember the last chapter, Hezekiah had committed himself to declaring the praises of God. Here is a great opportunity to do that. Here is a perfect opportunity for him to declare the greatness of God. But this could also be an opportunity to magnify his flesh. You see, the Babylonians are offering Hezekiah the chance of a lifetime. Something he has wanted so badly. An opportunity to gain prestige, peace, security from the flesh from the arm of the flesh from the world so the question is where does the temptation for sin come from it's not from the babylonians it's not from the situation itself james 1 verse 14 tells us where our temptation comes from listen to these words each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire the desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin in sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptations to sin, and all sin is unbelief, comes from wayward desires. Wrong, misdirected desires. Desires that are sinful and wicked. Inordinate desires. And when we follow them, they will lead us to our death. Spiritual, eternal death. And this is why the battle is won or lost based on our feeding our affections with the truth of God in his word. Do you realize that? The battle is won or lost every day based on our feeding of ourselves in our in our in our our, our hearts and our minds redirecting our desires in the right direction. Cuz that's what faith is. Faith is having our desires and our passions directed in the right place, seeing the greatness and the glory and the magnificence of God and humbling ourselves before him and living our lives to grace. This must be fed and directed by the word of God if we are to have the right affections and the right desires aligned with the truth. None of us are above the possibility of falling to any temptation. And so we see that even the godly king Hezekiah was was susceptible to temptation in verse 2. We read, And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure, the house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in all the house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. What does Hezekiah do here? Hezekiah puts out all the stops. He shows them everything, including the kitchen sink, right? The sock and the underwear drawer, everything. He shows them everything he has. And actually, it's emphatic here, isn't it? It says here that to make it emphatic in a negative way, he says there is nothing he didn't show them. Not only did he show them everything, but there's nothing he didn't show them, right? So, what? Why might Hezekiah have done that? Why might Hezekiah have done this? What? What might be the, the 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 driving force for showing him everything he had? That sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Well, it is not often that a great and powerful kingdom like the Babylonians comes and visits a small and insignificant people like Judah. Hezekiah is finally being acknowledged for his success. There is finally an opportunity for little Judah to make a big splash on the big stage, right? They do not want to miss a chance, an opportunity of a lifetime, to mingle with the superpowers. And so Hezekiah puts out all the stops. He wants to impress him, he wants to show him his glory, he wants to show him what he has, he wants to do everything he can. To not miss the opportunity. He's an opportunist, right? Do you see how silly this is? Do you see how silly what he does really is when you think about it? The Babylonians had much more wealth than anything Hezekiah could have shown them. The Babylonians had much more armory than anything Hezekiah could have shown to them. This is nothing. You can imagine the Babylonian envoy saying, Wow. That's something, Hezekiah. That's pretty neat. You have quite the treasury. What armor do you have there? It reminds me of when I was a kid. Sometimes we would have missionaries who'd come over and visit the church, and we would, we would feed them dinner and have them over to our house. And I remember tell them I can do a hundred sit-ups. I was pretty young back then. And so I tell them, I can do hundred sit-ups. And so I get down on the floor and I do hundred of them. And you can imagine their response. Wow, Isaac, that's really great. It's really cool. You know, they would say something like that to pretend that it was really neat what I was doing. But that is silly, isn't it? That's silly. There's nothing wrong. We're right about that. Just a silly thing I used to do. But there is something horrifically wrong with what Hezekiah is doing here. It is not just silly this is horrifically wrong and wicked he is lusting after the potential for peace security and glory that can come from the arm of the flesh from man he wants what comes from the human glory and power and might he wants from Babylon He wants from Babylon safety and protection from himself and his people and a little glory along the way. So in order to do this, he magnifies himself. He shows them his wealth. He shows them his power. He shows them everything he has. Why else would he have shown them what he has? Why else would he have shown them all his treasury and all his armory? So you say, no, Hezekiah, what are you doing? This is how the pagans act. This is how the worldly people act. The worldly people magnify what they have. The worldly people boast in their glory. The worldly people try to attract the help and strength of the world. What are you doing, Hezekiah? Isn't this how anyone wins favor with the world? We have to show the world what they love. If you want to connect with the world, you have to... Sh- you have to show the world that you have what the world loves. God. You have to impress them with worldly wisdom, with go. worldly wealth, with worldly things, and with worldly sinful desires. And so we know that the only hope that Hezekiah has for salvation is not found in worldly powers. We know it's not found in his power, and we know it's not found in the Babylonians. We know where it's found. And the only place for any salvation to ever be found is in Christ Jesus. It's in God. It's in the Messiah. It's in His salvation alone that we are saved. And nowhere else. This is the entire message of Isaiah. Chapters 1-39 through has been, There is salvation in no other name under heaven. The only salvation is found in Christ. Not only that, but the message has not only been spoken, but it has been demonstrated. Hezekiah has just been healed. Hezekiah has just been healed from certain death. God has come down and healed him miraculously. Not only that, but we saw the Assyrians turn back at the gate. God has proven that he is the one who saves. It sounds like Hezekiah has forgotten who God is. It sounds like Hezekiah has forgotten that one central truth of his life. That God is the one who saves. He has become too big for his own britches, you might say. His head has begun to swell up, and he's forgotten who God is. And so what is wrong, you might ask? Well, the parallel passage from Second Chronicles 32, verse 25, tells us what is wrong. And we already know what is wrong. But listen to what it says. And this is the parallel passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verse 25 that Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud so the question we need to ask ourselves is what does pride have to do with not trusting in God does pride have anything to do with failure to trust God and the answer is yes they go hand in hand They always work together. When we become prideful, when we forget who God is, and we magnify ourselves in our minds, we will not trust God. We will fail to trust God. When we lose sight of the greatness and the glory of God, when we lose our dependence on Him for everything, we will automatically become prideful and arrogant and not trust in Him. It's just the way it is. It always happens that way. When we humble ourselves before God, when we are dependent on Him, we will trust in Him. When we see Him for who He is, in His glory, and His greatness, we will trust in Him. So my question for you is, does it surprise you that this great king Hezekiah, the godly king, if you remember, the testimony of scriptures is that he was a godly king. Remember the epitaph the summation of his life from God himself in 2nd Chronicles is that there was none like him does it surprise you that this king, the king who was just healed the king who was just um, um, healed from certain death the one who had brought great reforms to, to Judah does it surprise you that he has failed so badly does that surprise you If it does, then you probably do not understand yourself very well. If this surprises you, then you do not understand your sinfulness very well. If we know our own hearts, we would not be surprised. Yes, be surprised at sin. Whenever we see sin, we should always be surprised at it. Sin is wicked. It is abhorrent. It is awful. So I'm not saying don't be surprised when you see sin, but what I'm saying is don't be surprised when people sin. Because that is our wicked, selfish nature. Even the best of us are susceptible to anything. I think of the psalm that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There are no exceptions. We are all prone to sin. We are constantly in danger of wandering. One man said this. He said, The best of men are still men at best seems to me that those who walk the closest to God are often the ones who recognize are most weary of their own sinful tendencies. The ones who are closest to God are most aware that they are easily drawn astray. Those are the ones who are closest to God and, and look to Him and depend on Him the most. And this should serve as a warning that none of us are outside of the boundaries of of the temptation to sin. We must be warned that every one of us will fall into temptation. So God knows our hearts, doesn't he? And his word is his tool for interrogating our hearts. And so here God interrogates Hezekiah through his prophet Isaiah in verses 3 through 4. And without any apparent warning, here comes Isaiah. Uh, Hezekiah and all the kings must have become weary of Isaiah walking in unannounced. You know, here's a man who from God can know your attitude, can know your reasons for doing things, and can know what you did behind closed doors. And so here comes Hezekiah barging in to the king with something to say. Here he comes again. And so what makes it even more unsettling is he he mixes all of the niceties, all of the formalities. He nixes them. That's the word I was trying to look for. He nixes all the formalities. And he, goes, and he goes right into questioning him. Whenever someone does that, you should beware. There is something in that probably you don't want to hear. So what does he say? He asks three questions. First he asks, what did the men say? And Hezekiah decides not to answer that one. Perhaps he knows that they talked about forming an alliance. I don't know, maybe. And so he knows Isaiah wouldn't be happy with that. But he asks the next question. And he says, where did they come from? And Hezekiah is very happy to answer that one. From a far country, from far away. You know, that sounds a little more innocent, doesn't it? Then he asks, what did they see? Right? And so it's almost like, and we don't know exactly what Hezekiah is sa- thinking, but it's almost like you might wonder if he says, gotcha. They got me. Right? He says, everything. I held nothing back. Now you don't think Isaiah doesn't know the answer to these questions, do you? Of course he knows the answers to these questions. Sometimes, I would say oftentimes, the problem in our lives is not a lack of understanding what we're doing. You see, our problem is a desire problem. It's not a knowledge problem. I mean, it can be a knowledge problem, absolutely, and we need to continue and grow in knowledge. But most of the time our problem is not a lack of understanding what we're doing wrong but it's wayward desires and God's Word is great at probing our hearts and sometimes questions are all we need to hear to expose the reality of our hearts and I think Isaiah is just trying to expose what is behind the scenes here. so God's Word always declares righteous and And this is exactly what Isaiah does to Hezekiah. From God, Isaiah speaks judgment to Hezekiah. That is right and that is just. God is always right. Listen to what God says in verses 5-7. through Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some from your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So what is the judgment here? The judgment is, if you liked to show the treasuries you had to Babylon so much, then you will be very happy to know that the Babylonians will soon take possession of it all. He says, not only will they take possession of everything you have, and not only will your children be servants of Babylon, But they will be eunuchs, meaning they have no earthly ties that will prohibit them from being in complete submission to the Babylonians. An incredible judgment from God. And what he's saying here is that they will go into exile. All the people will go into exile to Babylon. That's what they're saying. And he has said this before in different veiled ways, but here's the clearest pronouncement of the coming exile. So the question for us is, was this too harsh? Was this too strong of a statement? Was was God being harsh in his judgment here? I mean, what did Hezekiah do to deserve this? And the answer, I believe, is that I think Hezekiah's actions here is, first of all, he's representing the nation. So his consequences are serious. But second, I think what he does here is typical of the nation of Judah. I think that this is a reflection of a continual pattern that has been going on within the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah is representing the nation and showing us what they have been doing over and over and over and over again. And so this has been coming to them already. And when I think about this an example, could be Samson. If you remember Samson uh, in the book of Judges? We went through Judges. Remember, he was typical of the nation of Israel. Samson was a reflection of the people in his waywardness. The same we can see with Gideon. And I think the same is here with Hezekiah. You see, 2 Kings 17, 14 summarizes uh, the nation of Judah. They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. You see, this is a reminder of the way God works isn't it? The judgment here is a reminder of the way God works, and the way sin works in our lives. You see, it is often the case, whatever we love the most, whatever we cherish outside of God will come back and destroy us. Whatever we hold dearly to us in the place of God will end up destroying us. You see, you can't take fire into your arms and not be burned by it, can you? And God here shows us that whatever we have This prophecy about exile to Babylon serves as a primary hinge point to the whole book of Isaiah and I want to quickly say this because we'll talk more about this later but chapters 1 through 39 is one section of the book of Isaiah and here we move see that first section was all about the danger of the Assyrians and really the danger of not trusting in God and turning to the nations for help And so they said, you will not be saved if you turn to the nations for help. Turn to God for salvation, right? It's a great big warning. And so judgment after judgment after judgment. And now from chapter 40 through 66, they are in Babylonian captivity. They are in exile to the Babylonians. And now they are wondering, is God God? Is God going to save us? Is there no hope for us? And so what we hear throughout these chapters is primarily comfort, comfort, comfort. Comfort. God is going to save his people. And so you can understand how these two sections work together. But from now on, we're moving to exile in Babylon. And we're going to find out that God is going to save his people. He has not forgotten them, He is going to bring them to safety, and He's going to save them. We are just to trust in Him. So when we're in the wrong place, when we're being confronted by sin, It is often the case, isn't it, that we don't respond right to uh to someone confronting us. And that's exactly what it appears to me to be going on here with Hezekiah in verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have said is good, for he thought there will be peace in my days. What is the right response? To to someone telling us, confronting us with our sin and our wickedness? Isn't it to wail to to weep, to turn, to repent? And what does Hezekiah do here? He says, the word you have spoken is good. Now, in some sense, it could be, and this could be true. He could be submitting to God's word. He could be saying, it is right what God says. He could be saying, praise God, it's not as bad as it could have been, right? But I think what could be going on here is actually to be understood in light of the second point. Where it says, at least my days will be okay. At least my days will be fine. At least I won't experience any of this. And it sounds to me like he's a little self-centered here. It sounds to me like he has an attitude that is not consistent with repentance. And there are a lot of different views on that. It's not entirely significant, which view you take there. But it sounds to me like he is missing the point of repentance. So, the question is, why does our story of Hezekiah end this way? (laughs) Why does the story of the great godly king Hezekiah end like this for us in Isaiah? And the answer is to show us that he is not the Messiah. Hezekiah is not the Messiah. Hezekiah can't save us. He could not save his own people. He needed to be saved himself. He needed to be continually fed with his faith and to trust in God himself if he was to be saved. Like every one of us, he needed to be warned that he needed to be alert in his faith. He needed to live with a wartime mentality if he was to be faithful to God. Not like many Americans do who live with a vacation and a retirement mentality. He could be at one moment completely committed to God and the next moment fall very far to temptation. Now, does this contradict the statements of Scripture that Hezekiah was a godly king? No, it doesn't. Hezekiah is to be seen and understood as a godly king, but he is also to be understood as being a frail king, a faulty king, a king who needs a Messiah himself to save him. And truly, are we any better than our ability to turn people's eyes to the one who can save us? Our value, our goodness... Our faithfulness to God is simply our calling everyone's attention that there's only one who can save us. It's calling attention away from himself. I think of John the Baptist. He must increase and we must decrease. That is our role in this life and that's what we're called to do. But there's only one hero who should be honored and that is our Savior Jesus Christ, not Hezekiah. The best humans cannot save any more than the worst of humans. Jesus was without any blemish, and that's why I can say in Hebrews 7, verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 tells us how Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Hear these words in glory and rejoice in Jesus Christ. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is only through His substitutionary work on the cross that we are able to be saved from our sin it is only through his righteousness that we can be saved and there's nowhere else only his work on the cross can save us so our response must be to repent and turn to him and be saved our lives should look like this look at him and be saved stare at him and live stare at christ and live never look away from christ our whole lives our understanding at him every day. This means the greatest danger for any of us is falling away from the faith. And isn't that so pertinent today? You know, um, there's been a lot of talk recently about people abandoning the faith. I think of Josh Harris, a man who wrote some great books, books that I am thankful for today, who has abandoned and turned away from the faith. I think of a a recent Christian artist. I don't know who he is. He's John Stangard of Hawk Nelson, who recently renounced the faith. A friend of mine on Facebook recently renounced the faith. He said he no longer believes. And by the word, by the, by the way, there is no such thing as really an atheist. The Bible says that there's no such thing as an atheist. In Romans 1 verse 20 we read, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood for the things that are made, even the, His eternal in power in Godhead, so that men are without excuse. Everyone knows God exists. We just want to suppress it. We don't want to believe that we are accountable to God. We don't want to believe that someone is, that we're going to stand before someone and be accountable to Him. And so we suppress the truth and convince ourselves that we don't believe that God exists. But everyone does believe God exists. We just don't like it. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is bowing to God and confessing that He is rightfully Lord and Savior. So this is not new, by the way. Remember Demas with Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10? For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. How about Jesus' own disciple, who was with him for three years, Judas, who betrayed him? This is why you and I need to be warned and exhorted to continue in the faith. 1 Corinthians Uh, 10 verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Over and over and over again you will hear such warnings. Is Christ at the center of your life, or has He moved to the peripheral? Is Christ at the center of your lives, or has something else become the center of your life? Are you working hard to keep the Word of God in the center of your your, your mind and your heart? Has some kind of success, money, health, or anything like that encouraged you to become independent from God? How easily can success and wealth and health keep us from holding fast to Christ and give us a false sense of security and a false sense of pride? Have you had some spiritual victory in some area of your life and become deceived into thinking that somehow you have secretly elevated yourself beyond the need to fight anymore? Isn't that such a great danger of thinking we have found the secret and therefore I don't need to struggle and toil and fight anymore? That's so dangerous, we will fail if that's what we think. We never move beyond the, the need to fight in this battle. It is hard, it is difficult, but we must fight until the day we die, until our last breath. It is a battle and we never move beyond the need to fight. Or do you think that grace from some past victory will give you a pass from the battle that you are facing today? The Bible never gives us, uh, we never can store up grace from the past we need new mercies new grace today his mercies are new every morning great is his faithfulness everything we need is in christ and he has what we need today we need to go to him we need to depend on him so pray like this search me O god and know my heart test me and know my concerns see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and we know we are in the right place when we say this Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. From Psalm 115, verse 1. And so I'll close with this thought. Every one of us need to become good at warning and exhorting each other. I know I've said this before, but this is so important for us as a church. If we care about each other, if we love each other, then we will learn how to warn and exhort each other. We should be the primary people who warn each other. If you see someone going astray, if you think they might be, even if they're not, if you think there could be an issue, warn each other in a loving and caring way. That is how we love each other. And we should continuously be exhorting one another. We should become good at that. That is what we are called to do. I am responsible to be a chief exhorter and a chief warner of your guys' lives. And I pray that you become good at that as well. That all of us learn to do that. Hebrews 3, verse 12-14 through tells us, beyond any doubt, that that is what we're supposed to be doing. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Eternity is at stake here, you guys. God has a means for preserving us, and we need to continue to exhort and encourage each other if we love each other and if we care about each other. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the marvelous blessing, for the great and incalculable gift of your Son. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to this earth so that undeserving, wicked, Hopeless people like myself can be saved from our sin and have hope of eternal life with you. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your great goodness. But, oh Lord, we are so prone to wander. Lord, we're so prone to wander from your gracious, gracious salvation. We're so prone for our eyes to turn to other things, whether it's persecution, whether it's the difficult struggle of following you, whether it's the things of this world that can look so inviting and so good. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a sober mindset. I pray that you would enable us to take seriously the things of God. I pray that you would make us able to exhort and warn each other and to test our own hearts as well. Lord, to to warn our own hearts, to, to, to look at our own hearts, Lord to search ourselves and know if there's any wicked way in us. And I pray, O Lord, that you would search us and try us and see if there's any wicked way in us and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, may we continue to boast in you alone. Lord, may we see that our God is mighty. May We have opportunities this week to tell our neighbors, to tell our friends, to tell our fellow believers, Lord, to remind them. Lord, to tell those who do not know you for the first time, that there is a God who is mighty to save and that you are the one who can save us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.